Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Art Tavana to discuss his book, Goodbye Guns and Roses, The Crime, Beauty, and Amplified Chaos of America's Most Polarizing Band. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Art Tavana, author of Goodbye Guns and Roses, The Crime, Beauty, and Amplified Chaos of America's Most Polarizing Band. Art, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. How are you? Doing well, doing well. This was a really fun book. You wrestle with a lot of big issues. Guns N' Roses is probably the definition of problematic. And uh, I liked what you described in the in the preface of the book, that this was a self-interrogation of taste. Initially started as, a, as an attempt to wrestle with the question of whether or not Guns N' Roses is art. And it evolved into a deconstruction of myth that made melds popular culture with my second-generation MTV eyes. And the title is a fitting substitute for an epilogue. So that's a quite a few things to throw at you all at once. But explain a little bit of what you mean, like, and where you came down on the is it art, is it not art question. So this started at the LA Weekly, um, and I think I was at the at that time in like 2012, 2013. I was reading a lot of Chuck Klosterman, and there was always this kind of undercurrent of discussion in the indie kind of music world of you know what is good like rock and roll what is smart rock and roll what is good music in that space and guns and roses before like between like i'd say 20 like 2002 to about 2015 guns and roses was kind of not really didn't have a lot of appreciation in the music criticism world especially the sort of the music culturati of like los angeles and new york and i was getting a lot of like I was, in, I was in a lot of heated discussions with people about what constitutes art in music. And Guns N' Roses was always coming up in these discussions because people sort of wrestled with whether they are, you know, uh, sort of postmodern commercial corporate invention of the, of the music labels, of sort of hair metal with just a different kind of label on it, or whether Guns N' Roses were kind of like Led Zeppelin of their generation, this kind of organic blues-centered rock and roll band led by this chaotic poetic character and Axl Rose. And, and then it sort of evolved into like high camp for me in a way, discussing or like reviewing or thinking about Guns N' Roses and it became almost funny. There was an unintentional satire to like the later years, the nineties, the at least the use your illusion era. And I kept thinking of what is, is this, is this, is this art or is this sort of comic farce meets kind of a, I don't know, a commercial MTV style reproduction of rock and roll. What is Guns N' Roses? And I think that's sort of what, where I began. But I think that anything is art, 
if you think it's art and if it makes you feel something. But ultimately, I think for me, that that was more of like a meta criticism of the people that would always tell me that Guns N' Roses was not real music and that Guns N' Roses was not serious. And I think I took them seriously in a way as a kind of silent protest <laughs> to people who thought Guns N' Roses were a joke. And I think in some ways maybe they are. I don't know. But I think like I, I was taking them seriously as a work of art. I wanted to write a book where Guns N' Roses was being treated the way, you know, an art history professor would treat a, a piece of art from the Renaissance or something. And that was kind of where I was going with this initially. <laughs> <laughs> and it evolves over time because you sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say you conclude, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you yeah. essentially compare them to slasher movies and that kind of <laughs> trash slash camp slash sometimes powerful art statements. Exactly. And that's where the wrestling match comes in. And so the original title of the book, by the way, um, was wrestling with guns and roses and, and the subtitle was slightly different, but I think that that's what this book really was, was me wrestling. It's almost like, I think, I, I don't know what, there's a great poet that said like poetry is basically the the poet's argument with themselves coming onto the page and i think this book was poetry for me in that way it, it was a wrestling match with myself about what is guns and roses what's their aesthetic what do they stand for are they art what kind of art are they like how do they fit into the popular culture aesthetic of americana and i think for me they sort of represented a kind of merger of high camp b movie farce with um, high art in a lot of ways. I think, you know, November Rain is a perfect example of this because November Rain to me is the godfather in a lot of ways of music videos of the era, at least of the early 90s. But it's also kind of, you know, it is kind of high camp. It is kind of ridiculous. It's absurdist. And yet it's this brilliant, magnificent sort of like, you know, orchestral experience. And yet, you know, it's a bunch of rock stars dressed like Napoleonic era, you know, generals drinking and you know, champagne and dancing and a, and a woman randomly dies because it rains and all this absurd. Thing. And it's also, by the way, Donald Trump's favorite music music video. So there's all these like bizarre connotations to Guns N' Roses. Like, are they Led Zeppelin or are they hair metal? I think that's the wrestling match with the fans, too, by the way. It's always this like, is Guns N' Roses the Led Zeppelin of our generation, or are they just poison with a better PR plan? Um, and that's kind of what I like. Yeah, it did evolve into more of like my my final sort of conclusion was they're kind of this combination of high camp and very serious bluesy rock and roll, and it just merges together wonderfully. And I think, yeah, it's it's very MTV. It's very like Kurt, when Kurt Loder talks about Guns N' Roses. If you ever watch the Kurt Loder interviews or the Kurt Loder sort of introductions on MTV News, you really get a sense that he's you you understand Guns N' Roses through his face. And I talked to Kurt Loder about this once, and you see this like kind of self almost. There's almost like this cheeky like this is kind of a joke. This is kind of funny, and yet this is the most serious, intense rock and roll band in the world. And I think that's what I was trying to capture, that weird merger of farce and just pure art, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And the last thing I want to I want to pull out a little bit more is you describe yourself as a second generation of, of the MTV audience. I'm assuming you're a little bit mm -hmm. younger than me. I was 18 mm -hmm. when Welcome to the Jungle first hit MTV. So this was a big right. thing in my life. Um, I was never like a 
just crazy over the top Guns N' Roses fans, but you could not avoid the feeling of, oh, here's something that's better than the crap that they've been shoveling at us for a while. And <laughs> and they became such big stars over the next few years. Like at one point you say for four years from 88 to 91, they were the American Rolling Stones. And ever, I mean, I, you know, without even I, I think I did buy all the albums at various points or the first, you know, you, Appetite for Destruction, Life Like a Suicide, and and GNR Lies. But I, I was not a mega fan, but I knew their names. I knew their stories. I knew, you know, right. that Axel and Izzy were these crackers from Lafayette, Indiana. I knew that Slash was this really exotic, half-black, half-Jewish creature of privilege. I, I, I knew enough to know that he, you know, was born in England, raised in Hollywood. His dad was a famous artist who did Joni Mitchell album covers. And mm-hmm. his mom was this, you know, African-American, really exotic, beautiful, social, uh, not quite socialite, but close, yeah. you know, and that Duff was yeah. this punk rocker who had been in a band in Seattle called the farts. And Steven Adler was the sort of odd man out with the, the metal haircut and, and, serious heroin habit you know and so i mean they were just <laughs> all pervasive and they had this real power and i want you to um right we'll talk a little bit about their origin stories and how that relates to the big thing but first let's hear a little bit of music this is hollywood rose which was axel and izzy's band before guns and roses or one of their bands and this is them doing reckless life was Hollywood Rose doing Reckless Life. Uh, this is an early group that Axl Rose and Izzy Stradlin put together in L.A. Tell us about those different backgrounds and how you think that added up to the melange that was Guns N' Roses that made them so different from the other bands of their time and place. Well, they were different from the bands in their time and place, but they weren't different from the bands in sort of rock and roll's lineage and bloodline. Like they were very similar, again, to the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin in the sense that a lot of these bands were basically sort of scene-centric supergroups. Um, they were mergers of like really talented epic musicians who had their own bands and who had their own history, and they kind of came together at the perfect time in order to sort of light a fire in their scene, right? I mean, it's like, like Ray Manzarek and Jim Morrison, you know, meeting at the perfect time where the, the poetry met the blues or something, you know, where it's like Jimmy Page and Robert Plant meeting at the perfect time. And it's like, you know, Keith Richards and, you know, Mick Jagger bringing their blues influences and basically starting off as a cover band for the blues. Guns N' Roses were the same thing. I mean, these guys sort of came together in various ways in that scene. You know, the Hollywood Rose was the beginning kind of in a lot of ways, although it wasn't really the beginning beginning. I mean, we can go back to rapid fire. You can go back to so many different incarnations of bands. I mean, Vicki Hamilton, their first manager, um, always sort of described the scene as like bands, you know, artists were dressing up in bands the way they did in clothes. Like they were changing their bands every week. 
in that scene, in the 80s metal scene. And Guns N' Roses was no different. They were all in multiple bands before they finally came together. And it was more like, you know, Axel and Izzy kind of seeing, oh my God, this guitar player slash is unique. I think the key to all this really, and I, and I sort of emphasize this in the book, is Slash is really the the weapon X. He's kind of the, the real glue in the sense, because without Slash, you don't have that prodigy, but also not like a Van Halen style prodigy. You have a, a guy who's so different musically. He had a soul. He had a Hendrix quality to the way he played that was sort of bereft of, in the sort of hair metal scene of speed metal and fast and sort of showy, um, very like, you know, almost pornographic expressions of guitar playing sort of virtuosity. Slash didn't do that. He had that ability, but he very much was, you know, he was from a generation and from a, an aesthetic through his parents, a very classic artistic. And he understood he had a nose for what was happening in the scene. He had the marketing kind of talents. He doesn't get a lot of credit for this because he downplays it with the whole skater kind of persona of like this, like this kind of dim genius who doesn't really know what's going on. His hair is in his face and he's never really being seen. But Slash really was the marketing, the public relation. He, I mean, he, he created the logo, right? I mean, he was the architect in a lot of ways of understanding that we're not going to be successful as a hair metal band. We need to be be the band that says fuck hair metal. Even though we started off as a hair metal band, even though I auditioned for Poison twice, even though I dressed in, you know, the whole fish, fishnet makeup lipstick aesthetic, Slash understood that. And Izzy understood that as well, but I think Izzy wasn't as aggressive in trying to mold them into sort of like and I think Axel caught on to that really quickly and became the tyrant <laughs> of like, we're not going to be a hair metal band. We're going to be the Rolling Stones. I'm Mick Jagger. And I think when he became Mick Jagger, that's when it became very clear that like Slash wasn't pre Slash wasn't prepared to be Keith Richards, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's where it all fell apart. Um, he wasn't prepared to be this, the, the background, right? Like the second man, if you will. He, he, he wanted to be an equal player. And that's when Guns N' Roses kind of fell apart. But yeah, they were all so different. I mean, you have Izzy was this, this sort of punk rock. Uh, you know, he played in like hair metal bands, sort of weird punk hair metal bands in the beginning. And then Slash was doing his own thing. Um, and then you have, you know, with, with Titus Sloan and his own, and you know, Adler's this hair metal kind of Kiss fan, this like young skater punk, you know, bicycle riding Kiss fan. You have Duff, you have Axel, who's like, God, Axel was influenced by Queen. I mean, Axel's favorite band was Queen, essentially, right? And so you have this guy who was playing the role of a bluesy frontman, punk frontman, but he really always wanted to be like Freddie Mercury meets Elton John. So initially, Axel was wearing a mask in a lot of ways. I mean, that's not, I don't think the real Axel Rose is the person we see in the early Guns N' Roses. I think he was playing, he was performing for the audience, you know? Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. You've got a line in the book that you said, no band in history had worked as hard to define themselves as the alternative to the genre that had given birth to them. Yeah. Elaborate on that a little bit. And some of the moves, you know, the book is not just a, you know, blow by blow of their music biz history, but you get that stuff in there. And 
between them and the team at Geffen, Tom Zutout, who one of the legendary A&R people of the era, mm-hmm. Vicky Hamilton, who was in there at first, but then is quickly disposed of and replaced by an English manager, uh, Alex Niven. Um, they pulled some really slick moves. Tell us about some of those moves that they did to sort of take advantage of the pathway that Glam had cleared, but also to make it clear that they were part of the next thing. Right out the gate, Alan Niven and Tom Zutat and Axel Rose and Izzy and Slash, particularly Slash, I think, um, although it's not exactly clear, but I think and, – and Geffen PR – um, they sort of came together, and by the way, Bryn Breidenthal deserves some credit for this. She was the sort of the main publicist at Geffen PR. But I think they came together and sort of formulated a strategy unofficially that we're going to be the Rolling Stones of this generation, which means we have to shock, we have to sort of attack the the sort of puritanical structure of the the the, the sort of America as 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 it is, but also we have to reject. Um, in a lot of ways, our competition, and we have to attack our competition, and we have to turn them into an example of who we're not. And I think hair metal at this point was sort of slowly becoming a joke. Um, and, you know, you notice MTV is sort of changing its playlist. They're sort of burying a lot of the traditional sort of campy hair metal bands. Even Motley Crue at this point, although they're huge, even Motley Crue at this point is sort of getting suppressed. MTV, um, and you know, although they're all a big part of that culture, there was a movement happening at MTV at the same time. And then at the same time, Bon Jovi comes out with "Slippery When Wet," and and this doesn't get a lot of press, but I I, I focused on this. Bon Jovi really laid the groundwork for Guns N' Roses because when Bon Jovi comes out with "Slippery When Wet," they completely change their entire aesthetic as a band. They go from the party cocaine band of the hair metal generation with like you know girls in bikinis and neon bikinis on their cover and so forth into becoming this working class kind of bruce springsteen rock and roll band and that showed and then then the success of slippery when wet a monumental number one hit i think showed guns and roses either officially, unofficially, sort of in the background or subcom, maybe it was the label, maybe it was a lot of different factors, and I couldn't sort of explain all these, but I think that it just showed them this pathway to success is not being poisoned, but being more like, you know, a, a gritty, authentic American rock and roll band. And Metallica had a big role this as well because when Metallica was sort of growing and Master of Puppets became this like underground monstrous hit but also respected by the art critics and music critics Metallica immediately became a sort of blueprint for Guns N' Roses right it was this idea of we can actually become the biggest band in the world by rejecting the mainstream this is a new concept this is not the concept of Motley Crue, Poison, and you know Cinderella, and all these other bands. Those bands were very grabby, very overtly commercial, and, and, and accepting the role of we're going to be the bands that you listen to at parties. We're going to be the bands that you go to see with your your girlfriends and party and drink. Guns N' Roses was like, we're going to reject that entire culture. We're going to say fuck MTV. We're going to say fuck Poison. We're going to do magazine, you know, interviews where our publicists preemptively tell the magazine interviewers and editors 
This is not a hair metal band. This is not a glam band. If you refer to them as such, they will never talk to you again. <laughs> so there was a lot of careful public relations happening to orchestrate this idea that Guns N' Roses was, was not a glam metal band, although they were a glam metal band. They just evolved very quickly away from that. Um, it's like, and the reason why I, I say they're the only band that did this so aggressively, it's because Metallica never rejected speed metal or thrash metal. They sort of, they sort of embraced it until like the, the, the mid '90s. Nirvana never rejected or held their nose to grunge, although although they sort of were like rejecting the idea that there's even a, a thing called grunge. But they, they, they never rejected that scene. They 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 were paying homage to a lot of the artists in that scene. Same thing with Led Zeppelin and, and Rolling Stones, right? They, they were like in love with their influences. Well, Guns N' Roses was very much like, fuck everybody, we're different, we're our own thing, don't try to define us, you know? And that's and they worked really aggressively to do that, I think. And let's hear our next song. Uh, this is Move to the City from the Live Like a Suicide EP that was uh, Guns N' Roses' first release on Geffen. moved to the city from the Guns N' Roses Live Like a Suicide EP, which was not live. It was sort of recorded live with tons of overdubbing. They, they had to overdub the crowd crowd noise. But I thought this was one of several moves that they that Geffen made where they released this EP in a limited edition of 10,000. And you, you say like either a snuff film or an art piece, that they're creating this false sense of scarcity around the Guns N' Roses product. Relatively quickly, they re- release Appetite for Destruction in June of 87, and they've got this you know, famous-slash-infamous original album cover by Robert Williams that's the, the piece, Appetite for Destruction, the album was named after, which was controversial at the time, but they knew it was going to be controversial. They only printed up 30,000 copies, and this was a time when a major label band coming out the gate was expected to sell 100 or 200,000 copies just for showing up on Geffen Records. Mm-hmm. They only print up 30,000 the original cover, and 30,001 is this new cover. So they knew, you know, it was one of these, we're going to put out a controversial cover. It's going to cause an outcry. It's going to be quote-unquote banned, and we're going to re- release this next thing. And this is a move that they repeat over and over throughout their career. I, I mean, the gamesmanship is just brilliant. How long did they keep their heads and stick to their plan like this? I think they were extremely focused in the Appetite era. So the Appetite era would be defined from like 86 to about 91. I think they were very focused on establishing this notion that they were uh, sort of, you know, the shock and awe of rock and roll, that they had a very clear defined image of being the band, the sort of rock and roll band from the LA scene that was very different. That, you know, the Robert Williams piece was ingenious, although it was accidental. It was an ingenious move because having a painting, a lowbrow sort of meets highbrow painting on your cover art in that scene at that point, if you just look at the album covers that were coming out at that point, 
you know, again, of girls in bikinis and stuff. I mean, although Bon Jovi rejected that with putting literally a trash bag as a cover art. Um, but like that move was so smart. And then, yeah, again, Axel's talked about this even recently was it wasn't it, again, this goes against the sort of authenticity argument in rock and roll that's existed since, especially since like, you know, Kurt Cobain, but you know, to do that cover knowing it's going to get banned, right? They never said this, by the way, they never said they did it for that reason. They did, they did it ultimately. I mean, they eventually admitted it in like the two thousands, but to do that, knowing it's going to get banned, knowing it's going to cause controversy, knowing it's going to get them sort of suppressed by MTV. And that whole strategy was ingenious because what it did ultimately, right? This not, not, not only did it create scarcity, this idea that you have to get this record, it's going to be off the shelves any minute now. It also, again, it said we're more like Metallica than we are Poison. We're not interested in catering to mainstream corporate America. We're going to have our album removed from the record stores. Although strategically, they had the sort of the traditional Celtic Cross cover, the famous skull cover that everyone associates GNR with. That was ready to go. That was in boxes, packaged, ready to go to the record stores the moment this issue happened. It was it was completely planned. And that, to me, is ingenious marketing. I think the problem is people don't look at this as necessarily a rock and roll move or a punk move. And I think, to me, it was the Sex Pistols, right? It was Malcolm McLaren planning, and, and Alan Ivan deserves a lot of credit for a lot of this, but I think it was a strategic move to you know, use, to garner cash from chaos. And I think they, they denied a lot of this in the media, by the way, for years and years and years. It was always like, yeah, we're just doing our thing. We're just putting out whatever we want. We're just, we're, we're just gonna be, we're artistic sort of creatures who just follow our sort of instincts and create, but it was very, it was again, completely completely coordinated and, and and i think beautifully done in a lot of ways and and they use moves like this plus a careful cultivation of uh heavy metal magazines and, and right. rock and roll magazines hit parader kerrang etc to establish themselves as a credible underground rock and roll band this is when i started hearing from my serious heavy, heavy metal fans hey there's a new group you ought to check out but mm-hmm. it wasn't until we saw them on mtv that they became you know, enormous, unavoidable superstars. And it was right out of the gate with their Welcome to the Jungle video that they got into pretty heavy rotation on MTV, but it wasn't a smooth path. It was it was a video that was pretty much, again, kind of designed to be banned that had to be heavily edited to be acceptable to MTV. And there's a couple of, of gay record biz legends, David Geffen, of course, the boss of the record label they were on, and MTV executive John Kennelly, who was a huge supporter of the band, who right. made the moves that that pushed MTV to put Welcome to the Jungle in heavy rotation. Tell us a little bit about that. And the, I mean, the irony is just obvious of this <laughs> role of <laughs> these gay men and the popularization of this band that became notoriously homophobic. Yeah, it's it's ironic, but it's also it's it's you know you listen to Against Me, who had an album called Reinventing Axl Rose, and Against Me, this sort of trans punk band with Laura Jane Grace, and she talks about in her book how Axl Rose was this feminine-looking kind of, and then I think Chuck Klosterman talked about this once, and if you look at the the, the famous sort of. I think the most iconic photo of Axl Rose, which is the, the Herb Ritz shots, the black and white shots from New York in 91. I mean, if you look at these images of Axl, you see a very male, erotic, 
sort of, I can see, I mean, one of my, one of my really fabulous over the top gay friends described him as a gay twink in the sense like he, he had this very sexual, you can see why gay men loved Axl Rose. Okay. I mean, it's like, it's there, but the irony, I mean, it's not, the, not necessarily the irony. I think the, the sort of the interesting thing is John Canelli. I mean, he never comes up. He rarely is discussed in the sort of history of Guns N' Roses. Um, I think he adds some mention in the MTV oral history book that came out a few years ago. I mean, but ultimately, he really is the Wizard of Oz of a lot of this. Because if it wasn't for John Kennelly, who pushed for Welcome to the Jungle to get played, and he fought for that video, he fought for that, that song. If it wasn't for him, I don't think Guns N' Roses would have ever gotten on MTV. I think, I think David Geffen had a lot of sway. He had a lot of power. He could have made anything happen, but he wasn't actively involved in the lobbying process. People forget this. I mean, Tom Zutat has his version of events. Alan Niven has his version of events. We can debate that all day. The video was suppressed. It, was, it wasn't suppressed in the sense that it wasn't ever played on MTV. It was immediately on MTV. It just wasn't in heavy rotation. And if you study the MTV sort of era of defining culture, if you were not in heavy rotation, nobody knew you were there. Heavy rotation was the way you became famous. And sort of Guns N' Roses became heavy rotation because of John Kennelly, because of his lobbying, because of his passion and his obsession with Welcome to the Jungle. He's the difference maker in this. And again, Tom has his, has his famous story of like, you know, the, the video got played once and all of a sudden you know, the, the phones are going off the hook and I think that story is a little bit apocryphal. I think it's a little bit myth-making. I think John Connelly carefully lobbied in a very slow, painstaking process, and he took matters into his own hands. And he loved and He had a great relationship with Axl Rose, by the way. They were friends. Um, he's in one of their videos. So I think that that was an interesting – he deserves a lot more credit than he gets, to be honest with you. And let's take a quick sponsor break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how the wheels started to come off the Guns N' Roses machine. And so Welcome to the Jungle gets on MTV. They get big, but it's not until Sweet Child of Mine, which Axl Rose um, wrote for his girlfriend, uh, the daughter of Don Everly, Aaron Everly, which was a total group collaboration. Slash writes the famous guitar introduction. Izzy writes the chords. Duff writes the melody. Axel writes the lyrics. It becomes their only number one hit. It's easily the biggest hit of that era and makes them not just stars, but superstars. Axel becomes a teen idol. They've got the bad boy image on lockdown. For a minute there, they can do no wrong, but they follow up Appetite with... GNR Lies, which takes the first Live Like a Suicide EP, and then five, four or five new songs that are mostly acoustic, recorded pretty quickly. And one of them is called One, of a, one in a Million and was designed to shock, and boy, did it. Tell us about that and how, why you describe it as the most counterproductive artistic decision Axl Rose ever made. So, God, One in a Million is such a complicated song because in one way it's beautiful. It's melodic. It's, it's got pure rage. It's in a way funny, dark satire. It's, it's layered with so much. And yet, you know, the timing was just completely idiotic. I mean, this band that was so smart and so strategic with their marketing strategy and their sort of fame-making machine – 
drops this song out of nowhere. That's purely an Axl Rose decision, by the way. None of the other members were really involved. Um, completely just sort of this like solipsistic move that is absurd and, and crazy. And his, and his thought process, which was, again, completely delusional at this point, was that people are going to love this song because it's so raw and it's so honest and it's so real that people are going to get it. And, and he was, again, people don't talk about this aspect of it because it's sort of not necessary and it's been buried. But I think he was watching a lot of shock jock comedy. This is a big thing in like 88, 89, 90, 91. The Andrew Dice Clays, the Sam Kinistons. This was, you know, I can't even describe how big it was at that point in the culture. I remember being five or six years old and those pay-per-views and those HBO specials with these guys were the equivalent today of like five times what the Dave Chappelle kind of special cost in terms of chaos. I mean, they were huge and they were very punk rock because they were, they were completely, you know, let's just be honest. They were completely homophobic. They were racist. They were sexist. And people at that time thought that was provocative and cool in a way. Axel saw that and Axel tried to turn that into a song. <laughs> and I think, you know, we can debate the qualities of that song and the messaging. And I think that, but to do that right at your ascent, right at the moment where you're about to become the biggest band in the world, right at the moment where it's like Madonna going on, it's like Madonna going on the MTV stage in 1985. And instead of doing like a virgin, right, she went on there and made some bizarre political statement about the Pope. That would have been the end of Madonna. Um, or at least that would have been a bad move at that point. She knew what she was doing. She built up to the point where she became the shock Madonna. She didn't shock immediately in that uh, uncomfortable way. Axel immediately, right at the point where they're the biggest band in the country, right before there's, you know, their Coliseum show with the Rolling Stones, is using full-blown homophobic slurs, using like ruthlessly using the N-word, <laughs> making fun of um, sort of Middle Eastern immigrants, um, mocking just this insane song. And, you know, Geffen was like, trying to bury it because David Geffen, obviously a gay man who was involved in various charities, you know, supporting the gay community and HIV awareness and so forth. And the song literally makes a joke, a very Ronald Reagan-esque kind of joke that, you know, AIDS is, is essentially a gay plague. I mean, it's, it's sort of underwritten in the song, but if you listen to it, you see that. And the crazy thing about this was, again, we didn't talk about this earlier, but Guns N' Roses really was the anti- Reagan era band. They were the, they weren't ambitious. They weren't trying to be number one. They weren't trying to be like it wasn't the working class myth of Bon Jovi and living like a prayer, living on a prayer, which is this idea that you can become anybody. You just pull yourself up in the bootstraps, just work hard. There's a dream. They were the anti-American dream, and then they come with this song that sort of reestablishes themselves in a weird way as the prototype of make America great again. Right? I mean, this was the beginning of the white working class backlash against multiculturalism and so forth. And Axl Rose was like, weirdly, the sort of progenitor <laughs> of all that in this song. And why, and think about to do that at the moment where you're about to become bigger than U2, bigger than the Rolling Stones, bigger than Madonna. And this song ends that. This song puts a cap on their growth. This was when Guns N' Roses' audience stopped growing. I think at this point, their audience, the size of their audience 
shrank. And I think moving forward, they almost, they started becoming a cult band in a weird way. Um, yeah. yeah. A cult band that has this massive uh, audience and massive corporate machinery behind them. My dog is going crazy. So apologies on that front, <laughs> Preston. Uh, gets rowdy when we talk about Axl Rose. Um, yeah, but it, it was such an open mouth insert shotgun sort of career move. But then, you know, you close the chapter on that song with Alan Niven, their manager's response to the song. And it's this very heartfelt, you know, this is a guy who in his mind wanted to see Axl Rose grow into a John Lennon sort of figure. And in the eighties, right. John Lennon was seen as if he were Mahatma Gandhi after his killing Yoko Ono had this brilliant PR right. assault. But, you know, so John Lennon is a secular saint at this point. And somehow they thought that this song, and the thing is, it is an honest expression of his experience. He was this frightened kid from the sticks who was terrified by, according to his uh, accounts, terrorized by aggressive homosexuals, who was terrorized getting off the bus by aggressive black men, um, Mm -hmm. and apparently terrorized by aggressive convenience store owners, which, you know, I saw the L.A. (laughs) riots too, and those guys could bust out shotguns and, and, you know, be quite assertive and you know um but it's sort of and and he expresses all the ugliness and it's just the kind of thing if it had been tweaked just a little take out the slurs tell the story in a more sympathetic way if axel could have been capable of saying this song is a character this this is some of my experience but it's also a character it's not me i'm not this bigoted guy but he could not do that and he does things like at the rolling stone show First, he gets in a confrontation with Vernon Reed of Living Color, which was right. you know, this black rock group that was on the verge of glowing platinum themselves, represented, you know, they were allied with Public Enemy. Vernon Reed had played on some Public Enemy tracks. The Rolling Stones are very carefully picking who's going to open for them. They have this long tradition of picking bands, whether it's Stevie Wonder or ZZ Top or The Clash, you know, that I can Tina Turner that they see is this is somebody you guys need to hear. Guns right. N' Roses gets this anointing and just proceeds to shoot himself in the foot. And and I want to play one of the songs I think that summarizes sort of the Axel attitude. This is from Use Your Illusion. This is Back Off Bitch. Back off, bitch! From Use Your Illusion, I can't remember if it's off one or two, and and this is just sort of epitomizes the kind of punching down that Axl Rose could not stop doing. I don't think he <laughs> grasped that concept at all. And so, tell us about you've got this quote that I loved um, about Axl's PR response. He said, "In every interview, he sounds like a serial killer justifying his need to kill, or the politician dem- doubling down on their political miscalculations." And there's a point when Stephanie Seymour, his, his supermodel girlfriend, is clearly grooming him and trying to get him to mature. And he's he's disavowing songs like "It's So Easy," that's you know this incredibly violent, sexist track off of "Appetite for Destruction." But no matter how he tries, he cannot dig himself out of this mess. Why not? I think this reminds me of Tarantino. This reminds me of recently of Tarantino's discussions over the Bruce Lee um, depiction in, in Once Upon a Time. And it's like I think artists 
they get to a certain point where it's almost slightly megamoniacal. And I use a serial killer example because I think serial killers, at least our fascination with Charles Manson and the Iceman and, you know, John Wayne Gacy. And you watch these interviews with these guys. And if if they are open about their sort of, you know, their killings or perhaps, perhaps their view of their monstrosity, there's a there's a level of like obsessive perfectionist. Um, I know what I'm doing. You guys don't get me. I'm world building. You don't understand what I'm doing. I'm a genius and you're all a bunch of idiots quality to all that. And, and John Lennon did the same thing, by the way. And, and this is why the John Lennon thing comes up with Alan Niven is when, when, when John did woman is the N word of the world. Um, I think that was very much his one in a million. The only difference was he was doing it with a good cause under like the the impetus behind that song was I want to foreground this idea that women are being treated in a horrible way. Yoko Ono was in his ear, obviously a second wave feminist and so forth. So there was this like, but Axel wasn't doing that. Axel was expressing himself honestly and and you know viciously in a way. But the problem was I don't un, I don't know if Axel knew how to verbally communicate how he felt. I think Axel Rose, and I talk about this, was struggling with extreme mental health issues. He was struggling with a lot of other problems that we don't even understand. But I think he was it was incapable of just being thoroughly honest about that song. And if you look at the interviews, there's a particular interview in Interview Magazine um, where you know Stephanie and him are photographed. It's one of the more famous Guns N' Roses photo shoots where he talks about one in a million at length. And it's almost like he doesn't know how to pivot away from just all he had to do was explain that the song was a miscalculation, that he was trying to be funny. I mean, this is the, by the way, this is the Guns N' Roses explanation for this, the official Axl Rose explanation, at least, is that from his point of view, this was black satire, right? This was this, this was a joke <laughs> from his point of view. Um, and it was a joke that sounded like a complete honest honest confession so one front he's talking about how this song is not meant to be taken seriously and then on the other level it's the most complete serious authentic sounding confession of axel rose and i think that's why it was impossible to defend because he didn't even know what it was that he did i think i think he either thought it was funny and it wasn't i think he maybe made that up to defend it it's an unexplainable enigma he put he put himself in a really bad position and ultimately, they removed the song from their, their their release of the sort of, you know, the Appetite 30th Anniversary Collection. They removed the song from that. So he rejected the song ultimately. So, you know, I think he wasn't proud of it. Um, he, he probably has a lot of anxiety and discomfort with that song. Um, and, yeah, I think he was very angry. He was very high and drunk <laughs> half this time. And he was on a lot of medication. And I think he didn't know how to talk about it and it and ended up being very angry and, and very defensive extremely defensive by the way
Yeah, you got a great line that the song was the redneck without the filter of a bourgeois liberal satirist. There's no Randy Newman. There's no Bill Hicks. There's no John Lennon who's smart enough to calculate this stuff. And like when when Lennon did his song, this is in a time when Dick Gregory, the great black stand-up comedian's autobiography was inward. When Richard Pryor released three or four albums in a row that featured the inward in the title, this was all this theory of Lenny Bruce's that if we could just say it enough, it'll lose its power. And right. We're going to take ownership of this hideous, ugly word and all these hideous, ugly crimes. Unfortunately, it didn't work, as Dave Chappelle discovered, you know, decades later, when he tried to joke about this stuff, a big chunk of the audience doesn't get that it's a joke and takes it places you don't mean for it to go. And and Axel's one of those guys that's uh, not getting the joke, even while he's claiming to make it. But then they go to this use your illusion era. And I've long had this theory that. One in a million was a big blow your feet off with the shotgun moment, but they were also undone by the business model of the video era because you you do a mega album, you spend a lot of time recording it, you get some, you know, they didn't do this with the, like a Bob Ezrin type, you know, perfectionist producer, but they did put a lot of time into the production of the album. Then you spend a lot of time and money making videos and releasing them over a period of years while you tour. Therefore, you're not like ACDC or KISS in the 70s where it's, boys, we need a new album every six weeks. And so you're cranking out this body of work that, if you're good, will hold up and create this legacy. They're writing the songs. They're not like the New York Dolls or the Sex Pistols where they get so far in the hole that they can't create anymore. These guys are producing. They're not sitting down to record. Then they finally sit down in 1990 and record and record and record and record and produce this monstrous, bloated two double CDs that drop at the same time with this massive trilogy of videos that they spend tens of millions of dollars on all told. And, um, you know, there's no way really for people to process it. And the time delay between their releases is so long by the time they come out, they're passe. Right. Right. Yeah. I think the, the thing that was happening in 88, 89, 90 was punk rock was going from the underground and slowly infecting the teenage consciousness. And Guns N' Roses was not aware of this. And what happened was, and this is the funniest, this is sort of the most tragic story of the Axl Rose kind of myth, is he discovers this is happening. He sees gangster rap. He sees punk rap. He sees Nirvana happening in 89, 90, 91, and he tries to get involved. I mean, the genius of Axl Rose that he never gets a lot of credit for is that he's extremely, he's like, he's like Quentin Tarantino in a lot of ways. He knows how to pull from other aspects of popular culture and sort of keep himself kind of relevant in a way. I mean, he fails at this <laughs> miserably, but he like, he knows how to, like he knows what's going on in popular culture. I mean, he did this in the 2000s. He saw Nirvana before anybody else did. He tried it. He took, I mean, he went to a Nirvana show in 90, 91, I think, early on before they were the, the quote, you know, biggest band in the world. And he wanted to get involved. He wanted to, to, he wanted Kurt Cobain to tour with him. He wanted to have Nirvana play his birthday, which is so absurd and comical to even think about the fact that he called, like his representatives called. Nirvana and said, we want, we want you to play Axl Rose's birthday. I mean, it's so he's at once, he's so connected to the popular culture. And at the same time, he's completely tone deaf. I mean, to ask, to ask Nirvana to play your birthday. Um, but also 
you know, he saw gangster rap happening. There's, there's all these things with him wearing an NWA hat. There's all these references to him to Easy E. You know, one in a million. One of the, one of the defenses he had of one in a million was rappers use this language all the time. I'm sort of. He was merging shock jock comedy with with gangster rap, and he didn't see that it's probably not the best move from you know a redneck from the sticks. But yeah, and so I think that this. This undercurrent of punk rock is happening. He's aware of it. And at the same time, again, this is the, this is the thing about Axel Rose that never makes any sense. At the same time, he's doing everything you can possibly do to reject that teenager. Like, I think the thing Guns N' Roses did in 1991, 1992 was to say, teenagers, you're not part of this conversation anymore. We don't care about like what you think, how you feel like we're going to continue with our fan base. We're at this point in their 20s. We're going to continue like, you know, feeding that fan what they want, kind of. And then we're going to like mystify children who are watching MTV. I was one of these children. I was nine years old when November Rain premiered. And I couldn't I didn't know any of this stuff. To me, it was magical. To me, it was cinema. To me, it was Shakespeare meets Godfather meets rock and roll. But so that's classic. And let me let me jump in and yeah, play right. our last snippet. This is Estranged, which was the third song in the trilogy of video releases off of Use Your Illusion. This is the one that MTV did not pick up, did not run into the ground, despite them spending a gazillion dollars making the video. This is Guns N' Roses Estranged. was estranged uh, from Use Your Illusion by Guns N' Roses. And it's perfectly fitting because around this time he loses Stephanie Seymour. This is the romantic partner that you say he never really recovers from losing. And he also loses Izzy Stradlin, his partner, the guy who contributed as much to the songwriting of Guns N' Roses as anybody, the guy that came with him from Lafayette, or actually preceded him to LA from Lafayette, Indiana, loses all these key people, but still has plenty of voices in his head. So go on with what you're because your perspective as a nine-year-old seeing this stuff is fascinating to me. Because to me, it was just like, oh, God, what is this bloated John Kraft <laughs> that's never not on MTV? Right. So you have, to, you have to put yourself – this is why I think the one of the things about my book that I think is and, and you know interesting is that it's probably the, the only Guns N' Roses book written by someone from my generation. I say second generation, not just second generation MTV, but also second generation Guns N' Roses. I did not discover Guns N' Roses in the sort of appetite for destruction era. Now, when I was like five or six years old, I recall the image of Axl Rose as this really terrifying, primal, animalistic guy in Welcome to the Jungle, but that it was scary for me. I didn't understand it. I was frightened. It was too, it was too adult. November Rain was weirdly, and I don't want to like I don't want to use this term, but it was kind of a Disneyfication of the Guns N' Roses mythology. It was a movie. It was a Western. It was John Ford. It was, you know, Francis Ford Coppola. And, and at, you know, when you're when you're a child, nine years old, this is very easy to wrap your head around. It was cinematic 
effect, the colors, the palette, the tone, the energy, the piano, the orchestra, it all made sense. So it seduced me into their mythology immediately. And so while they lost the teenager, while they lost the punk rock kid, while they lost people who were trying to be edgy with their friends and the college sort of intellectual crowd who were listening to the talking heads kind of stuff and sort of like maybe gravitating towards grunge and so forth or REM at this point, they lost those people completely, <laughs> okay? But at the same time, they indoctrinated this generation of young you know, insecure, confused, pre-pubescent kids like me who are like seduced by it. But I think, yeah, I think guns are, I think Nirvana happening at the same time was, a, a, you know, you look at riot girls happening at the same time, Kathleen Hanna is coming out and rejecting literally like she listened to guns and roses. Okay. And actively was like, fuck this patriarchal kind of heavy metal shit and i'm gonna reject it i'm gonna create an entire movement to reject the patriarchy and heavy metal and that's happening in C in washington axel has no idea about any of this he kind of gets a sense of nirvana through geffen but i think you know they're they're having strippers come on stage and serve him pizza they're they're doing these decadent bizarre music videos they're you know touring in a giant airplane they're playing gigantic stadiums they're missing shows james hetfield is mocking axel rose for being a diva um axel rose is smoking cigarettes out of a cigarette holder like some 1940s sort of diva pre-code kind of like hollywood movie star like Gloria swanson and it's like they're doing everything you can possibly do to reject the punk rock element that is taking over culture and it's like Bam, in like 1992, it's like it all it explodes in their face at the MTV Awards. And I think the MTV Awards in 1992 were wasn't just the beginning of the end. I think that was the end of Guns N' Roses as a ban for the youth of America. I think the youth of America at that point disengages almost completely from Guns N' Roses. So. Yeah, absolutely, because Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love brilliantly use Guns N' Roses as the spoil, uh, just the way Guns N' Roses has had used Poison and Motley Crue as a foil four or five years earlier. And it's so telling that Axel could couldn't deal with this. He didn't have this. He was he didn't have any ability to make fun of himself, like you point out in the book, and he just could not get this. You know, he he th physically threatens Kurt Cobain, tells you know, um, tell your bitch to shut up, or I'm going to put you in the pavement. And Cobain's holding a baby and just goes, "Shut up, bitch!" And, and you know, Courtney, <laughs> everybody laughs. You know, what can you do with that? And it, you know, Axel's twice his size. There's no percentage in beating him up, and. Okay. You know, and then when Metallica, they have this feud with Metallica. They do this sort of dream tour with Metallica, and Axel literally triggers riots and converts Metallica from uneasy allies into brutal enemies who spend the rest of the decade continuing what Kurt Cobain had started and convert Axel Rose into this heel. Meanwhile, he converts himself into the Howard Hughes of right. rock and roll, as you say. He's not the James Dean. He's not Live Fast, Die Young, which is what everybody had pegged him for initially he's this weird desiccated isolated you know i mean at various points he's got Buckethead, this weird freak character he's got tommy stinson from the replacements he's got none of the original band left and plotting away on this album that by the time it comes out chinese democracy nobody wants to hear it how is guns and roses seen today 
I think Guns N' Roses has become, and I described, there's no terminology for this yet. And I think we're not, as a culture, we're not ready to even like think about it this way, but they're a cult band that has a very massive dedicated following, like, you know, the Grateful Dead or Radiohead or Tool. They're big. They have this huge dedicated loyal following. But I think popular culture, I think the, the youth of America, I think mass media kind of views them as a relic of the past. And I think the, and I write about Lana Del Rey a lot in this book because one of the things I struggled with, and I, and I, and I find this with so many bands, it's really easy, right? Kurt Cobain's, like the influences, the people who, who in our current culture are influenced by Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, you can literally list off and immediately, right? Anyone from Billie Eilish to whatever, right? It's, it's there, the aesthetic, the tone, the strategy, the, the identity, the music. You can't find that with Guns N' Roses. You can't find an artist who's like an Axl Rose product. Who are who are the artists influenced by Guns N' Roses? And the person that I found that was the most influenced by Guns N' Roses was Lana Del Rey. And the way she talked about Axl as her daddy and the way she talks about Guns N' Roses, the fact that she attended shows, the fact that she maybe potentially dated him, she was sort of capturing the... Guns N' Roses as this what they're what they I think they are now for like the intellectuals in this country maybe or like the people who actually think about rock and roll a lot they're kind of this relic of Americana an artifact of an America that no longer exists of an identity of a rock and roll energy that is just you know gone extinct and in, in a way it's beautiful because they represent something so true I mean they represent the last in my opinion they represent one of the last defining. American classic rock band. They may be the last classic rock band that came out of America in a lot of ways. And I think Lana captures that in a lot of her music when she talks about Americana and Axl Rose and rock and roll and what happened to rock and roll. And that's how I think one genre of the world views them. I think there are people who view them as racist, homophobic, sexist monsters that need not be discussed. I mean, I, I remember having a debate on Twitter with Talib Kweli not too long ago, where he told me, we, we, we just got into it about one of his songs, and he immediately called me all these names, and he said, the reason I'm saying this is because you're writing a book about Guns N' Roses, and it was like, well, because you're writing a book about a guy who wrote One in a Million, you're writing a book about a racist. So there's, there is that, there are people who will never forgive them for One in a Million, and there are people who will never f- accept them as artists and just view them as like hair metal, a hair metal band that became the biggest band in that genre. In a lot of ways, I think ultimately what their legacy might be is that they became the biggest hair metal band of all time. And I think that's a good note to close with. The book is Goodbye Guns N' Roses, The Crime, Beauty, and Amplified Chaos of America's Most Polarizing Band. Author is Art Tavana. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Fascinating and enlightening stuff about America's Most Polarizing Band. Thanks, Nate. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Dave Thompson to talk Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder, and the birth of electronic dance music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Mm-hmm.